Now, it is a good morning as far as I'm concerned, and some mornings we say 80% of success is showing up. Some mornings I change it and say 85, sometimes even 90. Today, you get 95 because it's a holiday weekend, and um, it is the most traveled weekend in our country. People travel more this weekend than any other weekend in the entire year. I saw that on the news, and we know the news never lies. So you guys are here, and I appreciate that. And if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us online, making the effort uh, to do that this morning. We're going to have some fun. And um, it's a communion, a Lord's Supper service this morning. So it's an important time for us as a church family to reconnect with God if perhaps we've drifted, to remember our commitment to Him, to tell Him thank you for all the things that He's done for us, the way that He has blessed us. And we'll talk a little more about that in uh, just a few minutes. Now, I'm going to talk to you, actually give you a little message, a little teaching this morning, which I don't always do on Communion Sunday mornings, and I'm going to be talking to you from the book of Revelation, and it's, I think, important. It's been on my mind. It's something that I feel like that we as a church need to pay extra attention to. We need to be careful, and I don't think that the characteristics that I'm going to be talking about this morning are really applicable specifically to our church, but I do think the principle of being very careful in our faith. Matter of fact, the Bible says for those who think they stand, be careful lest we fall. I think we need to be careful. I think these are warnings for us. Perhaps maybe there are some of us who will identify directly with the three things I'm going to be talking about, and maybe there'll be course corrections for us. But I'm really glad you're here, and I've been praying all week that this morning would be the morning that maybe things could be different for you. I know that sometimes we struggle in our faith. Have you ever had a relationship with somebody and you just feel like it's distant, like they just keep you at arm's length? You want so badly for it to be close. Maybe you're dating somebody or you want to date somebody and you're just, you know, you can't figure out a way to break through, that you're trying to, to put out, you know, your best self forward and trying to figure out a way to get them to connect and they just keep you at arm's length. Maybe it's a friendship that you're trying to develop. You really need an intimate, close friend. You've seen somebody who you want to be friends with. They just don't want to be friends back. They just sort of just keep you kind of at a distance, polite, friendly, not friends. Maybe it's a relationship you have with a spouse where there maybe was intimacy at one point. And I don't just mean physical, I mean emotional, a connection. And over time it's drifted and you want so badly to get that back and you just don't know how. They just keep you at arm's length. They just keep you just at a distance and you want so badly to have what you used to and you just can't seem to figure out how to make that happen. Maybe it's with a kid. Maybe you're a parent of an adult child. Maybe some things have happened. Maybe you wish you could take them back. Maybe your child did some things that they wish they could take back and there's distance. You want so badly to be a parent, to be a friend. And for whatever reason, they just keep you at arm's length and you can't figure out how to bridge that gap, how to, to close the distance. Maybe it's with a parent. Maybe you have a parent that's just unavailable emotionally. And you want so badly to have that relationship and for the life deal, you can't figure out how to make it work. Well, I think sometimes if we're not careful, we are that friend, that spouse, that parent, that child, when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. I think that sometimes if we're not careful, we're polite, we're respectful, but we keep God at arm's length. We don't want him gone, 
because we may need him. But we don't want him too close because it kind of freaks us out. So we've become professional or professionals in managing our relationship with the Lord. Where we're really good at keeping him right here. Almost superstitious in our faith. But there's no connection. Jesus wrote a letter, seven of them, to seven churches in the book of Revelation. And these seven churches were churches that had been in existence for about 30 years. Time for there to be a little water under the bridge. Time for things to have happened. Time for churches to split and get back together and families to leave and families to come. And all the stuff that happens, unfortunately, in churches where a bunch of humans are gathered together. And there were letters that were written to each of them. And each letter was different, specifically addressing the different circumstances in each church. And this particular letter was written to the seventh church of the seven, and it was sort of in a delivery route down a long road in a valley. And it was the last church, the last stop. And it was the only church where these specific things were written. And it was to a group of people, some of whom probably weren't believers, but some of whom were believers, were Christians, who had learned to keep God at arm's length. They were managing their relationship with him, being respectful and religious, being polite, but not allowing that intimacy, that friendship, that closeness to happen. I think if we're not careful, we can become just like that. So there was a letter that was written. Jesus wrote this letter or dictated this letter, the Holy Spirit, to a man named John who wrote it or penned it. And and it was given to a person who delivered it to the pastor at each of these churches who read these letters to the churches from Jesus. And this particular letter, well, it said some really strong things. And I think it's pretty important for us to focus on these things before we celebrate communion. And I think we need to remember whether we identify directly with these things, whether we can see ourselves on this slippery side of the shady slope, right, of should, or whether or not we are really walking with God and don't see these things at all in our lives. We need to be careful. We need to listen. We need to learn. And perhaps today's the day that everything changes. This church was in Laodicea, and Laodicea was a city that was um, pretty remarkable. It was on a trade route, which was big bucks for anybody back in the day on a trade route. It meant that anybody who had to go from here to there had to pass through Laodicea. Laodicea was a rich city. It minted coins for the Roman government, and so any new leader or emperor of a province that wanted their face on a coin would go to Laodicea, and they had the people who could stamp the coins, and, and they made money off the currency. They had a special kind of wool, a sheep that they raised, and they harvested black wool and so they had a special black garment that they wore and exported they had balm they had a medical school and were known for their their medicine and they had a balm that they had created for the eyes I mean they were rolling in success this this uh, city but they had a problem the problem in this city was that they had bad water Now, some cities have bad water. The entire state of Mississippi, I think, right now is struggling with water. There's one city, Jackson, that they can't eat or drink the water and can't even shower with their mouth open. This was similar in in nastiness. They had a spring that was about four miles away, and it was a lukewarm kind of a spring. It was a nasty, brackish sort of a, just a spring that you wouldn't want to drink from at its source, but it was piped in four miles in terracotta pipes, about three feet wide, open at the top and gravity fed and the water by the time it made it into the city was just about well it was disgusting and literally church historians and historians tell us that people sometimes in the wrong conditions would drink the water and literally throw up 
And so can you imagine living in a city like that? They couldn't go to Hy-Vee or Fairway and buy flats of water and drink what they wanted. They were stuck, and everybody in the city knew two things. Success in life, or most people did, and bad water. So they received this letter, and the letter is written masterfully, as is all of Scripture. And it is so powerful and picturesque that I just want to read a section of it to you. And I want to talk to you about how we can bridge that gap. How we can take down this arm and let God in. How we can stop managing our relationship and allow intimacy with Jesus. So let's read this together. Revelation 3, 15 through 17. Jesus says, I know your deeds. Now, that's kind of scary. There was a movie that was like, I know what you did last summer. Came out a few years ago, and it was sort of freaky because somebody knew what somebody had done. And, and this was a horror movie. Don't go watch it. Don't Google it. Don't Netflix it. It's just a reference. But this is Jesus, and he's saying, I know what you did last summer. I know what you did last weekend. I know what you did last night. I know what you did when nobody's looking, and you know what? I'm not happy. No, it's not because... He's a judgmental, angry, smiting, smoting kind of a Jesus. It's because he's, he wants friendship with us and he sees the result of us managing our relationship and keeping him at arm lengthy. I know how you spend your money. I know how you spend your time. I know what you're thinking about. And he says it not in a condemning kind of a way, but in a connecting kind of a way. And he says, I know your deeds. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. You have the right beliefs, the right theological constructs. You say the right things, you tip your hat the right way, you can quote a few Bible verses. You're professional at being religious, but there's no connection. He says, You're neither hot nor cold. Now they got this in the word picture because they had literal water coming in that was neither hot nor cold, it was lukewarm and it was nasty. And then Jesus says something here that's one of the most picturesque and sort of disgusting things that we see in all of Scripture after the whale did this with Jonah back in the day. And he says, so because you are lukewarm, neither committed nor uncommitted, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You make me want to throw up. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Here's what Jesus is saying. That because you have everything you need, because you have your health, because you have a job, because you have a car, because you have a house, because you have clothes to wear, because you can take a vacation in the summer, you think everything's good between you and me. You think because you don't have an emergency in your life, everything's cool. And he says, life is so much more than managing emergency. But I see how you keep me at arm's length and I want so badly for us to connect. And because you don't have any apparent need in your life, you don't realize how desperate we are. That spiritually we're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And that's a pretty powerful thing for Jesus to say, a pretty condemning thing for a church to hear. And if he left it at that, it would be bad news. <laughs> He'd walk away and go, All right, that didn't work out. 
I got to go find something else to do with my life. Clearly, I've been judged, sentenced. What's the point? But Jesus doesn't leave it like that. And let's look at this together. He says, here I am. I stand at the door, the door of their church, the door of their lives, and I knock. Now, I'm thinking Jesus, since he's God, and God can do anything, kick the door down, right? He could kick the door down and come in, and he could make us do what he wants. He could rearrange our priorities by forcing us into submission, but he doesn't. Because, because of God's nature, there's one thing God can't do, and that's make you and I love him. He won't. So he stands there as a gentleman, patient, loving, knocking. And the question is, will we open the door? Now, Jesus says, anyone hears my voice, when they open the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And you're like, ah, what's the big deal? Sharing a meal with Jesus? No, no, no. We're talking about the last meal of the day, the daipnon in the Greek. It was the meal culturally that was the one at the end of the evening that you relax when you eat. And if you ever invited anyone to eat with you, it was because you were friends. You didn't have anywhere to go. You didn't have an appointment later. You didn't have to look at your watch. You weren't just showing up for 15 or 17 minutes. You were there. And the purpose was connection. And Jesus said, I'm here. I'm knocking. What are you going to do? And the people, la, 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 I can't hear, right? I hear you knocking. You can't come in. I'm busy. I got other things to think about. And I was thinking about how tragic it is when a person chooses to close the door of their heart. Second Peter talks about how tragic it is for a Christian to have embraced the truths of the gospel and understood who Jesus is and yet slid back into their old way of life and that it's even worse than a person who never came in the first place. And I was thinking about three things that I want to challenge you with and I promise you I've been challenging myself with these things and every friend I've been around this last week. Three things that I think are absolutely necessary in us opening this door to Jesus. So I want to share them with you. These three things all start with T because that's what preachers do. We try to, uh, to make everything easy to remember, something that sticks in your mind. But these are three things that can change your heart. The first one, time. Few things more personal than our time. But one thing is true, we cannot microwave relationships. Impossible. Time with the Lord. Unstructured, unselfish time. Time with my wife makes a good relationship. 
Joy's out of town. She left me unsupervised for a whole week. And for the first two days, whenever my wife leaves town, she's watching, so I'm sorry, Joy, but I like it because I have all kinds of things I want to get. This is the truth about me, and it's a weird thing. It's idiosyncratic, but I like to deep clean. I don't like to clean clean, but I like to deep clean. There's some things Joy doesn't like to do. I have a long list of things, and when she leaves town, I do these things. Pressure wash all the concrete, clean all the baseboards. I do weird things. But then after two days, and it's almost on a 48-hour clock, I wake up and I, I look over and the dog is sleeping on her pillow. And I'm like, come this, my wife. And last night we're talking on the phone. I'm like, man, I just want to spend time with you. Can't have a relationship with my wife without spending time with her. I can't have a relationship with my kids, with my friends, with Dan, with our staff. But one of the first things we do is schedule God out of our lives. I've known lots and lots and lots of busy people in my life, but I've never known anyone who's too busy to do the things they really want to do. But yet sometimes we choose to schedule God. And I don't mean church. I mean God out of our lives. Starts for many of us with this passionate connection with the Lord where we're reading scripture and we're praying and we're on fire. And of course we're coming to church and of course we're in a small group and of course we're doing these things. And then we begin to pull back a little bit. We don't spend quite as much unstructured time listening to worship music, walking and asking God what he would want for our lives reading the word and thinking about scripture. We're like, God, what do you want from me? I showed up at church, check that box, pat me on the back. I mean, I, I came to the Easter service. I went to Christmas Eve twice. I gave you a hundred bucks, God, what do you want? And then pretty soon we even moved that out a little further and we drift. The second thing, Transparency. To open the door of our life, of our heart. We need to stop connecting or communicating with God in formulas, in formalities, and just be transparent. It's the foundation for any good friendship, the foundation for any good marriage, the foundation for any good church. Transparency. That's what our city groups are all about. Spending time with other people who look pretty good from a distance. And then when you connect, you realize that they're just like we are, that they struggle in life, that their kids aren't perfect, that their jobs aren't always secure, that sometimes paying the bills isn't easy or fun, that sometimes their temper gets the best of them. Sometimes they might say things they shouldn't say to people, send emails they shouldn't send. And you realize one of the things that connects us is the fact that we're all dependent on God and we need each other because we choose to be transparent, but the same is true with God himself. I heard another pastor say this, first it freaked me out, then I loved it. Sometimes we have to pray R-rated prayers. Now, don't get me wrong, think it through. God, today my heart is filled with anger. I hate such and such. And I wish they'd die. Oh, I don't want to tell the Lord that. He's going to say, Rick, 
how dare you think that about one of my creatures? Now you're really in trouble. What's he going to say? I know you feel that way. I know you feel that way. God, today my heart is filled with rage. Today my heart is filled with lust. Today my heart is filled with fear. Today my heart is filled with, what is it filled with? We take it to the Lord and we dump it out instead of these thou's, thus's, and therefore's, trying to manage that relationship and make him think the best about our intentions and who we are. We just choose to be transparent. And there's something so freeing to be known by other people and known by God. I don't have to try to convince you. I want to make sure this, we, we connect here because this is so true. I don't have to try to convince any of you guys that I'm perfect because you know me. I'm dependent on God. Need God for every step of the day for strength, for direction, for peace, for hope, for patience, for power, and yes, for love. And you do too. And you know that about me. So you don't expect anything else. And I don't expect it from you. And other people know it about you, but sometimes we won't let them see it because we think we can hide. All right, enough said. Number three, and this is the scariest and this is the hardest, and that is the third T, total surrender. Submission. Here's the definition. Using everything I have in my life, my ability, my money, my thoughts, my time. Everything I have, I choose to use for the benefit of another. I talked to a good friend this week and we were talking about marriage and he said, marriage isn't 50-50, marriage is 100-100. And as you know, that's true. Any good marriage is 100-100. Any good friendship is 100-100. Any good connection or transparent relationship where the time has been invested to cultivate or develop something. Well, it's 100-100. I don't want anything from you. I want for you. And what I have is available to you. And when it comes to God, it freaks us out because we think he's going to take something from us. Well, if I let you in, God, it's going to get ugly. You're going to make me miserable. I'm going to have to quit this, sell that, stop doing this, move here. I mean, we have a huge list. And the assumption is so ludicrous. But it's so human and we make it. Now, here's the logical response. We worry God's going to take something from us, but he's God. He could take anything from us that he wants to at any time. Ask Job if you want to know what can be taken from a person at any point in any time. We think it's ours, but it's not ours in the first place. And as a good father, he's not in the taking business. Because he loves with a perfect love. I was thinking about this in relationship. God calls himself the father and he calls us his children. And it's hard for some who don't have good relationships with their father. I admit I'm blessed to have an amazing dad. So it's easy for me to make 
this, this connection or this step. But what's a good dad want from their kids? How should a kid relate to their, their good dad? I have a great relationship with my boys. I'm fortunate, I'm blessed, I'm lucky. And when I talk to them, and I talk to them almost every day, if not every other day, we talk about life. We talk about decisions. And I thought just in the first service as I was getting ready to, to walk up on stage, what do I want for my kids? I want to help direct their lives. I want to help shape them. I want to help nudge them. I want to encourage them. I want them to find success and freedom and happiness. I want them to be the men of God that God wants them to be. And if I can help do that, what a privilege. And I thought, how much more does God the Father want from me? What does he want for me? Why don't I let him? But if you have the kind of kid that doesn't call much, the sort of distant, that manages the relationship with you, he calls you up or she calls you up and, Mom, they butter you up at first because you know they want something. You were a great mother. You took such good care of us growing up and you invested so much time and money. I'm so thankful for you and Dad. By the way, I got arrested and I need money for a lawyer. Um, I mean, they, you know, the, the ask is coming, Right? Can I borrow 300 bucks until Friday? And you're like, I want to help. I want to direct. I want to be a part. But why do you only call me when you're in trouble? Why don't you want me when things are good? Why don't you trust me? My wife called me the other day. Still in the first two days of her being gone. Where I'm getting stuff done. She said, hey, where are you now? That's not an unusual thing, right? I mean, we check on each other. We connected. I usually know where she is. She usually knows where I am. But I was a little frustrated because I was doing some stuff. And I said, Joy, you got to find my friends. Why don't you look on your phone if you want to know where I am? That was my answer to her when she was at it. That's how bad I'm, I'm still new at this husband thing after 32 years. I said, just look at your phone. We got the iPhones. You can look on the map. There it is. Rick, right here. She goes, I don't really want to know where you are. I just want to talk. That's connection. Time, transparency, total surrender. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door and makes that first move, Jesus will come in and we will have a friend like no other. We're going to celebrate together communion. And the Lord's Supper is a recreation or a remembrance of a time when Jesus met with his disciples. We call it the Last Supper in the upper room. It sounds very formal. But it was just a time where Jesus got his best friends together right before he was arrested and tried and tortured and crucified and rose again. And he got them together and he said, fellas, there might have been some ladies there. He said, things are going to get crazy. This is my paraphrase, okay? I know you all know me. I know you believe in me. I know we're in step. We're in sync. And you're going to find this hard to believe, but life is going to hit you square in the face. Trials are going to come. You're going to get busy, and you're going to forget. And you have to remember. 
because I have a plan for you and a purpose for your life. And so we're going to have dinner together. That used to be the Passover ceremony or dinner that was becoming something totally different this evening. And Jesus said, now I'm going to break some bread. I'm going to pass it to you. And it's going to be symbolic of me offering my body for your sins on the cross. Now, remember the disciples at that point are like, we still don't know what you're talking about, but we're tracking. They're taking good notes, right? And then he's had a cup. He had a cup of wine, and he said, I'm going to pass this cup. And as you drink, it's symbolic of my blood that's going to be shed for you on this cross to pay the price for your sins. And he said, when you eat and when you drink, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. Now, what that means for us is that we remember the time when we became believers in the first place, followers of Christ. So, logically follows that communion, the Lord's Supper, is just for believers, for Christians. That doesn't mean we want to exclude anybody. I'm thrilled you're here if you've not chosen to follow Christ yet. This is a great place for you to be, to be able to hear what I believe is really the essence of being a disciple or a person of faith. But it's for people who've chosen to follow Christ, not a member of our church necessarily, but a member of the body of Christ, and a person who's willing to come and to state to God and to everybody else, my heart is right. It's in the same condition as when I became a believer. Nothing held back, no fine print in the contract, no golden parachute, all of me to all of you. And I don't know everything about you, God, but I love you, I'm gonna follow you, I'm gonna serve you, all of me. And by coming back, we're saying that's still the condition of my heart. Now, you may be honest like me, and you may go, that's not the condition of my heart. And so we do something. The Apostle Paul tells us in Corinthians that we're supposed to examine our hearts. Because if we receive communion without examining our hearts and doing business with God, it's just like us saying to God, God, I want you here, and I'm happy with the religion. If I need you, I'll call you, but don't come any closer. Nobody wants to do that. So this is what we do as a church family. In just a minute, Ashley and Daniel are gonna come and they're going to sing a song that we're going to listen to. We're gonna give you about three minutes just to get alone with God, right here in a group, just yourself, just the Lord. And I just want you to ask God, is there any thought, action, or attitude displeasing to you that's in me, Lord? How's my time? How's my transparency? How's my total surrender? And if he points anything out, you make it right, because that's the point. And so we call that confession. Forgive me, God. I see it. I don't like it. Take it away. Then it's commitment or recommitment. I want to do it right this time, God, but you know what? I'm me. It's that transparent prayer. I screw up. I need help. Thank you, God. Thank you for saving a bonehead like me. Thank you for giving Jesus to someone like me. Thank you for this freedom and this peace that comes 
not having to live for myself anymore and knowing that I'll end up spending eternity in heaven. So Ashley and Daniel are going to come and you are going to have a minute to just get along with God. Then, if you're ready and when you're ready, and maybe there are things you have to deal with with the Lord, you're not going to be ready today. It's no big deal. I'll invite you, give you more instructions and tell you when, and you'll stand and you'll come to the front. And our servant leadership team or staff or deacons will give you a cup with some juice and a cracker that symbolizes the body and the blood of Jesus that recreates that time when you came to him in the first place and recommits your desire to live for him and to make him number one in your life. A rededication of sorts, a reenactment. So I'm gonna pray. Ashley and Daniel are gonna come and sing and that I'm going to come and give you further instructions in just a minute. So sit tight and meet with God. Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word.